receive that this morning, God, is, is the prayer of our hearts, our desire. As we have worshipped you and now continue to worship you in another way, as we open your word and consider what you have to, to teach us, I pray that you would show us yourself and help us to see. Help us to have eyes set on you, God, as you've revealed yourself through your word and as you've called and equipped us to go. So, so help us with that. Apply this truth to our hearts so that our eyes and our hearts and our very lives would be set on you, not just in this place, but wherever you have us today and throughout this week for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You are free to be seated. And the kids through fourth grade are also released to their classes. As they're going, we'll be in Mark 13. It's been a, a couple weeks. We're stepping back into the Gospel of Mark as we've been journeying through this together now as, as a church body for, for some time and seeing Christ showing himself revealing himself, showing his mission. And as that comes to a culmination here, we pick things back up in Mark 13. The title of this message is Stay Awake. It is a long chapter, that's right. And it's not because we've done a poll of, of, of the congregation and been watching for a while and thinking we ought, to, we ought to remind you all as we step into another sermon that you need to stay awake. Um, so, as much as maybe we want to slip that in there. As I was thinking about this, this text and thinking about the, the necessity of staying awake, I was thinking about battle. And, of course, where else could it be more fatal uh, to, to fall asleep on duty than in the midst of a battle, right? And looking back in history, there was one particular uh, battle that I, that I found as I was doing a little bit of uh, studying, i.e. using Google, to figure out how to make an introduction to a message. And in the 1830s, there was a battle going on for territory, the Texas, the state, what was now the state of Texas, and the Mexican army was, was holding it, and, uh, and Sam Houston's leading a Texan army trying to take, take over. And Santa Ana was the, the commander of the, the Mexican army at the time, and they were, they were nestled in, they were situated, and, and Houston's leading his troops in. And uh, they set up camp around, and they didn't attack. And uh, so, so the next morning, they, they get up, and they didn't attack. And so finally, around noon, Santa Ana tells all of his troops, his entire army, to take a, take a siesta, take a nap. We're good. We can rest up for a little while. And shortly thereafter, Houston's army attacked, and uh, in 18 minutes, the battle was over. And uh, so the moral of the story is, you know, stay awake, or Texas becomes part of the United States instead of part of Mexico. So, so that's a little helpful idea, reminder. But in the midst of this passage, really the application to our lives is that very thing, to stay awake. As followers of Christ, that's what we're supposed to take away from this. What does it mean for us to stay awake as disciples of Jesus Christ? 
The big idea that we're going to see as we walk through Mark 13, this is, this is the longest section of, of teaching that Jesus gives us that Mark records. Uh, it's one, one extended teaching is what we see, which is why we're looking at one chapter the enti- in its entirety right now. The big idea is that the follower of Jesus serves him with eyes open. Okay, the follower of Jesus serves him with eyes open. Throughout Mark's gospel, we've seen that some people have had eyes to see the truth of who Jesus is and what he's come to do, and many others seem to be blind to that truth. As Jesus' mission is nearing its conclusion, its climax on this earth, he expects that those who are truly committed to him would have, would have eyes to see and understand, and he longs for them to stay focused in that way, to keep their eyes on him. So we're seeking to follow and serve Jesus with, with our spiritual eyes open. That's our, our hope as we dig into this. What's the first thing that those eyes see as we, as we come into this chapter? The, the first point in your outline is that the kingdom of Jesus is turning things upside down. We're going to look at the first few verses together, this chapter. Mark 13, beginning in verse 1. And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. I love how this begins because Mark is is giving us a picture of the humanness of the people who follow Jesus. As we see throughout not just Mark's gospel account, but all throughout the New Testament, these are are human people. (laughs) And, And so... It's a perfectly natural human thing to, to say, to be taken in by the, the, the beauty and the, the glory of this outward structure. They see the temple in all of its grandeur, and they're just swept away by how wonderful it looks. And Jesus responds, not by shutting them down for their foolishness, but by, by teaching in a way that deepens and refines their understanding. What Jesus does is is he peels back these layers, getting people to see beyond what impresses them about outward appearances. And he does that by, first of all, letting them know that these great buildings aren't actually long for this world. Their stones are literally, literally going to be dismantled, and in the process, the kingdom of God is going to be turning expectations upside down. Uh, so a, a quick recap of where we are as we jump into Mark's gospel here in the 13th chapter. He has been, this is, the, this is the final week of his earthly life and ministry before he goes to the cross, and he's been teaching in the temple. We've seen that if you've been with us for the last few weeks before this, as he's been teaching and people have been questioning him and testing him, and this has all been taking place around the temple, and now they depart they're walking away from the temple. They cross the Kidron Valley, climb the Mount of Olives, and they can see, they can scan the Temple Mount in all of its majesty because it was quite an amazing complex in the city of Jerusalem beyond. 
And now they're thinking about these words that Jesus just said, that this is all going to be destroyed. And so naturally, they, they have questions. And they have questions that any of us would really ask if, if we have something about the future that kind of nags at it. This is coming, Jesus? What are the questions that we would have? Well, we want to know when it's going to happen, and we want to know what we should look for so that we know what's happening. See, the disciples ask questions like we ask questions, right? And Jesus is going to answer their questions, but not the way that they ask them. He's going to answer with, with this exhortation, with this challenge on how they ought to live in the present in light of the future. And so that's what we need to take to heart as well. That's what we're going to be seeing throughout this text. The call to stay awake, to keep our eyes open. As Jesus begins this discourse, he's calling his listeners and all of us to see. You see that in verse 5? See that no one leads you astray. See to it that no one leads you astray. He, he didn't want people to be drawn in to the things that so, so easily fool us. He knows the hearts of people. He had told his disciples that the stones of the temple would be, would be thrown down, and they immediately wanted signs. They wanted dates. And all through the ages, people have attempted, in the name of Jesus, to pinpoint signs or to establish dates. <clears throat> and, and Jesus was right. They lead many astray. Some are merely a distraction to us. Others have led people into entire religious systems. They've caught people up in what, they, what, what they're saying, these, these cults, these, these religious systems that some of them still exist to this day and, and are strongly making headway in the world, built on this very thing. All throughout history, since the time of Christ, there, there have been so many imposters, so many deceivers, and so many to be wary of. So how, how do we see clearly? In a sense, the question could even be asked, how do you know that I'm not one of them? And I would trust that the answer would be because we're here. Because this is what's speaking to us. And I pray that anything that I say is simply God speaking this through me. <laughs> Because this is what God has already spoken. And God is speaking, and he's doing it through this, because he's alive, and his word is alive. So anything else that doesn't fit in with that is suspect. I hope that this makes sense to us, that, that our spiritual senses, in a, in, in a way, are, are heightened so that when someone comes claiming a new word or a new revelation from the Lord, that we realize that, 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 that we don't need anything new. We need to understand what he's already given. God has spoken. So may we not be led astray. Have your spiritual eyes open to those who claim such things. In the name of Jesus. And in addition to speaking in Jesus' name, some are going to point to signs. And we may read verses 7 and 8, rumors of wars, tribulations, kingdoms against kingdoms, famines, earthquakes, and say, well, according to my Facebook feed, all that stuff is happening, so the end must be here. And 
I would say that even though social media hasn't existed for the last 2,000 years to record all of those events for us and make sure we're aware of them, that those things have, in fact, been happening for the last 2,000 years. And they've been happening with regularity. So are they signs of something? Certainly. And is the end closer today than it ever has been before? Yes. Yes, it certainly is. And that's what we know. That's what we have. So, so it's just a reminder. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. It's a reminder, just as it's, it's the beginning of, of birth pains. He says, Paul in Romans 8 uses this, this same language. The whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, he says. And when you think about that, that communicates a clear message. As I don't know, but any woman who's gone through the experience of giving birth knows, there's pain in labor. And you don't know when that's going to come to an end. But you know it's going to come to an end. And in the end, there's something that results. There is a baby, there's a child, there's a new life. And so Jesus is simply reminding us of the same thing. In this world, as it groans in these, these pains before the end comes, we don't know when the end is coming, but endure the pain, and there is a glorious end in sight. In this case, it's, it's a new kingdom. It's being in the presence of our glorious king. That's what we're waiting for. So the immediate lesson is to have an awareness that these things are going to happen, not be surprised by their happening, and to have our eyes open because there's a purpose as all of it unfolds. As it's happening, there's, there's application as we strive to live for Christ in this period of waiting. And so that's where Jesus is taking us next. In this period of waiting, kingdom people proclaim the king. That's, that's the second thing we see here, beginning in verse 9. Kingdom people proclaim the king. Be on your guard, he says, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit." And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father, his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus begins here with another warning to have our eyes open, to, to be awake, to be on guard. It's a word that is first to his disciples as they're gathered around them because Jesus knows what's coming. He knows what they're going to encounter in just a short while as they begin to go and proclaim the kingdom. We can see that in Acts as it's responded to differently. Some respond with, with acceptance, with joy, and come into the kingdom. And others respond with, with, with persecution, with hate, with oppression. And the disciples have to be ready for that. The church, as this letter is written by Mark, to the church, for them to understand, they're in the midst, the grips of persecution in Rome. 
This is a message for them, and it's a message for the church of Jesus Christ throughout the world, throughout history. Because even as we were reminded at the beginning of this service, considering praying for the, the church as it's persecuted throughout the world today, this is happening. And in it, the gospel is being proclaimed throughout all the world. So, so that's, what, that's what's going on here. You can expect the, the, the persecution, the tribulation to happen, but, but the gospel's going forward. So this is the calling that we have. As a disciple of Jesus Christ, regardless of where you are situated in history and in geography, bear witness to Christ. Proclaim the King. Proclaim the gospel. That's what you're here to do. That's what we're here for. That's why God has you in the workplace that he has you in. That's why he has you in the, in the school that you're in. That's why, that's why he has you situated in the neighborhood that you're in. You signed on your house thinking that that was the house that you wanted. <laughs> that's where God wanted you. And realize that, that we're not all in the same place. Have you noticed that? We're not all neighbors. We don't all work at the same place. We don't all go to the same school. So God has us spread out all over the place. Isn't that what's great about the church? We can all come together. We come together to know Christ so that we can go and not just go into the same place, but go all over the place and make him known. And we can expect as we do that, as we start to proclaim the kingdom, in some circles that's going to be met negatively, right? And for people around the world, sometimes the way it's, received is, is much worse than anything we're going to experience right now. We can at least proclaim the kingdom without fear of, of death or torture for us or our families, at least right now where we are. But there are still things that, that we're afraid of that keep us from proclaiming the kingdom, aren't there? So what are those things? What are the things that genuinely cause us fear, trepidation, and proclaiming the kingdom? And where do we begin to push, to push through those to allow the power of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus reminded us of, to, in, to empower us to step into those places. And it begins with this question. Do you know the king? Yes. Do you know the king? Is, is Jesus your king? Because it begins proclaiming the king, we have to know the king. We have to know the gospel. We have to be able to, to explain to someone that you, just like I once was, are lost in your sin. You're separated from God. You're, you're, you're severed from any possibility of a relationship with God because there's nothing good enough in yourself that deserves to come before a holy and righteous God. But, but he sent Jesus. And Jesus lived a perfect life and he died. An atoning sacrifice was his death on the cross. An atoning sacrifice for our sins. Taking our place. Taking the wrath that we deserved. And being raised to life, to conquer death, ascending to God's right hand where he intercedes for us, behold him there, the risen king, the risen lamb, my perfect, spotless righteousness, the great, unchangeable I am, the king of glory and of grace, one with himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by his blood. My life is hid with Christ 
on high. Amen. So, so is he your king? Can you help someone understand the gospel? And can you do it through the truth of God's word? Because as you begin to do that, as you lay hold of that, that's where the Spirit comes in. And he gives, gives the power, he gives the, the boldness, the courage to step into those places where it's uncomfortable, where, where there's negative response. As we do that, this is the part of the message that Jesus is very clear on and doesn't necessarily feel good, but you can expect trials. You can expect persecution. You can expect opposition. That's the, the assurance then that he gives us in the face of trial, that his spirit is working in us, empowering us, and strengthening us, strengthening us even as he assured us that the trial is going to come. In John 15, 18 to 21, Jesus reminds us with this assurance, if you will, the world hates you, know that it has hated me first. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, because you're of the kingdom, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. So, so here we are, as those who proclaim the name of the king, may we not be surprised by the response that we receive. But may we stand firm on the assurance that he is working through us and will strengthen us for whatever will come. I said this may not be the most comfortable thing for us to take in. And one of the places that that, I think, challenges us the most is in the place where we expect comfort. In fact, might I suggest that we've bought into a lie that says our earthly comfort is of utmost importance. You see, what Jesus is helping us see here, what he's helping us see throughout the Gospel of Mark is that we're not ultimately here for this. Now, all of, all of this is meant to direct our hearts and our, our gaze toward Him, toward His ultimate coming, toward His victory, and toward His glorious kingdom. So that's what we see unfolding, even as Jesus continues here. The, the third point, the kingdom is unfolding from this day until the last. Beginning in verse 14, but when you see the abomination of desolation standing where He ought not to be, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down, nor enter his house to take anything out. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that it may not happen in winter. For in those days there will be such a tribulation as has not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom he chose, he shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. 
have I, told, I have told you all things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, and the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he will send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. Whoa. So, so Jesus is unpacking something for us that has caused scholars to scratch their heads throughout the centuries. And not because it's entirely unclear, but because there's so much here. And because I want to take time right now to allow this to be the message that Jesus is communicating as a whole, uh, I'm going to encourage you to do the theological digging. There's a lot to be mined. In fact, for all the, the scholars who have expressed a viewpoint about this passage, there are that many different viewpoints, if that makes sense. So putting all that together, we consider, what's the starting point? Let's look at where where Jesus is and what he's talking about. And he, begin, he began this, this whole discourse with a question about the destruction of the temple. When is this going to be, and, and what are the signs we ought to be looking for? And, and so Jesus is going to answer, and he's, and he's going to provide some insight, but he's not talking just about a single moment in history. For, for example, the destruction of the temple, which happened in A.D. 70. And there are things in what Jesus is explaining that point very clearly to that, that moment, that historical event. And then there are other things that Jesus is saying that point to something far beyond that. So this illustration, I hope, will be helpful. Uh, go ahead and share with the next slide. So this is, this is Mount Yale. If you're in Buena Vista, Colorado, this is the view, looking up at Mount Yale. And we can, if we're not careful, we can start to approach pro prophetic scripture and see, okay, there it is. That's the, the thing we're looking for. For example, the temple's destruction in AD 70. But then you get up on top of the mountain, and the view changes. And you see, oh, there's another mountain and another one, and another one beyond, all the way to the horizon. And you realize that as Jesus is explaining this, even the disciples aren't going to get all of this. Even we don't get all of it, which is why there are so many different ideas that go into the discussion of this passage. But the reality is it's all, it's all pointing towards something. From the beginning to the end, it's all pointing towards something. And there's events along the way that fulfill these words and ultimately, we're looking for what's on the horizon. So I hope that that's helpful, even as we spend just a few moments in this text, for us to consider, oh, okay, there's a, there's a both and to this. Here's Jesus talking about this experience, and he's talking about something else to come. So the abomination of desolation in 14, as he begins this discussion. This is a, a, a phrase that he took from Daniel, one of the great Old Testament prophets. And Daniel used this expression more than once. For, for one thing, he used it in Daniel 11 when he's talking about the abomination of desolation that was fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes, setting up 
a sacrifice of pig's blood on the altar to desecrate the temple in Jerusalem in 167 BC. And that happened in history. And it was a fulfillment of what Daniel said. But Daniel also talked about the abomination of desolation, the one who makes desolate, setting up an abomination in Daniel 9, 27. And he's talking about something that is yet to come. And Jesus is, is piggybacking on that language to say, yes, there's, there's going to be an abomination of desolation when this temple is destroyed in AD 70, when, when the Roman soldiers come in and set up their, their, their victory you know, battle flags in there, and, and when all these things are happening. But it's also pointing to something beyond that. And so between Daniel and between what Jesus is sharing, we see there's, there's the already and there's the not yet. There's a both and of what's unfolding. And we see that throughout this text. Some of these things that Jesus says are, are, are warnings that would have been very fitting for the people who experienced the destruction of the temple in AD 70. To, to get off the rooftops and get out of the city quick because the destruction is coming. That really wouldn't make a lot of sense during this, this great tribulation time when there's really nowhere to go to flee. But other things that he's saying make a lot of sense of what's yet to come, things that we've not experienced. He says there's a tribulation coming that will be greater than any of these. The, the worst is yet to come. And then on the other side of that, the, the most unimaginable, glorious finish. That's what's ultimately in store, and that's what he wants our eyes on through this. So, so not getting bogged down in the weeds of the theology, let's look to where Jesus is pointing. This is where he's pointing. There's a king coming. Okay, he said just a, a few moments before this, I've told you all things beforehand. Be on guard, in verse 23. Be on guard, I've told you all things beforehand. And we say, but what about all those other things? What about all the blanks I've not yet filled in? What about my end, end times timeline? I don't have that quite figured out yet. And Jesus said, I've told you all things beforehand. What you need to know, I've given you. And here's where we're going. The king. The king is coming. That's where all of this is pointing. For all that Jesus doesn't say, and for some of us that seems like a lot, this is what he's pointing to with certainty. He's going to return. And when he does, it will not be as the, the suffering servant, as we see him here in Mark's gospel, preparing to go to the cross. He's going to be coming as a triumphant king, returning to make all things new, to make all injustices right. And they're going to be they're, he's going to be coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and they, the people, are going to see him. Amen. So, once again, it's about our eyes being open, isn't it? After that tribulation, after things couldn't possibly get any worse, after that, that final abomination that makes desolate, the heavens, it says, are literally going to be shaken, and then he will be seen. So, so while perhaps in the midst of this message you've not said, th thought this was very comforting, may I suggest that here's where the comfort comes. It doesn't come in our present trials. It doesn't come in the persecutions in this world. It comes in the fact that one day the heavens are going to be shaken and the king is going to come for his people. And he's going to set up his kingdom and will reign forever. 
And we will be part of that. That's our comfort. That's our hope. That's our security. In spite of tribulation, in spite of hardship, in spite of calamity, our King is coming. So, so are our eyes open for his coming? That's where these last verses are just going to leave us as we finish this, this text. Kingdom people must be ready for his coming. From the fig tree, he says in Mark 13, 28, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that he is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, Stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. So Jesus first turns to a fig tree to illustrate this need for, for readiness, for being prepared. And he's used a fig tree before, and I think it's just a, it's a handy teaching aid. It's right there by him, and, and a fig tree... Is, is a deciduous tree. So in the springtime, it's what? It's budding. It's showing new life. And as it does that, the connection to us is when you're thinking about the seasons, if you see the tree budding, what's coming? Summer. Yes, yeah, sp summer follows spring. And so Jesus is saying, look, look at the fig tree. And just as you see that and know that summer is near, when you see all these things happening in the world around us, they're, they're just buds on the, on the tree branches. Okay, so when you see, when you see the, the, the hardships, when you see the church enduring persecution, when you see the tribulations, when you experience the calamities, those are buds on the branches that remind you that summer is coming. We haven't missed one yet. Sometimes the spring seems, in, in, it seems impossibly long and painful, but, but summer is coming. The king is coming. So as we're going through this, I, I want to do a quick aside on verse 30. Jesus says, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And we, we may read that at surface level and say, wait a minute, this generation did pass away. Because if he's talking to his disciples, you know, they're not here anymore. They're dead. So these things didn't all take place. So did Jesus mess up here? And, and so, again, this is where we, we I, I, without getting into the weeds, I want to make sure that we're at least clear on a couple of things. For one is these things. What is these things? Is, it, is these things the, the events leading up to the destruction of the temple? In which case, that was true. That happened within their generation. Or is it that these things of the tribulation, it's coming. The generation that enters that, the tribulation will end. And he will come before that generation passes away. Regardless of which it is, may we not get hung up thinking that Jesus misspoke. Because 
we can take this, as he even just said in the next verse, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my words will not. So, so we take this, which is clear, and then when we get to an unclear part, we allow this to inform our understanding, because this, this word of truth, ought to inform how we interpret it. <laughs> Let Scripture help us interpret Scripture. So we realize Jesus didn't lie because Jesus doesn't lie and Jesus knew what he was talking about and the king is coming and we realize that generations have come and gone and so he's talking about something beyond that. One thing that is clear, we don't know the day. And I feel like we ought to linger there for a second because people will come and say, this is when Jesus is going to come. I don't know why we get caught up in this stuff, but we do. Jesus says no one knows. So if anyone comes saying that they have an inside scoop on when he's coming, they don't. They're lying to you. Because no one knows except God. And he does know. And there's no question in his mind. Summer is coming. The king is coming. It's going to happen. So our place is not to guess at when it's going to be. Our place is, just as this last illustration is going to show us, is to serve, is to do the work of the master of the king while we wait for his coming. He gives this illustration, and it's rather self-explanatory. The master goes away, and he leaves his servants in charge of the house, in charge of doing the master's business, in charge of doing the master's work. And he says to the doorkeeper, stay awake. And so as the doorkeeper, not knowing when the master is going to come back, what do you do? You, you stay awake. You stay awake You stay because you don't want him to come and find you sleeping on the job. And that's the charge to each one of us. That's a charge to the church to, to be ready, to be going about the work of the master of the king while we wait because he's coming. Last week, we were challenged to consider the church is not a cruise ship here to, to provide for our every comfort and to, to bring us rest and leisure. No, the church, we ought to consider more as a battleship. On board a battleship, every crew member has a job to do. And in order for things to run smoothly, everybody has to be doing the job, the task assigned to them. And one of the most important things, everyone on their battle stations must be alert, must be awake and attentive at all times. Is that not right? So that's, that's it. That's the charge to us. That's what we take from this as, as a church, as a team, as, a, as an army serving our God. Hebrews 10, 24 to 25, to sum this up, let us consider, brothers and sisters, how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more, as you see the day drawing near. That day, the coming of our King. So what? Does the call to be awake and on guard stir us out of complacency, out of comfort, and into the mission of the kingdom? Are our eyes open for his coming? God, I pray that they are. God, I pray that our eyes are set on you. And I pray that the way we go about the things that we do this week 
will even be affected by this reality. This reality that, that all this around us is just pointing to something greater when you are going to come for your people. Help us to be faithful. Help us to serve you well this week and, and in the weeks to come, God. Keep our eyes set on, on your business, on your work that you've called us to, knowing, God, that you are coming for us. We rest in that assurance and that hope this morning. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.